chapter 13, verses 31, all the way through chapter 14, verse 6. So 13, 31 through 14, 6. I trust you're prepared to join the disciples this morning in their storm. Back in 1991, there was a fishing boat, a sword fishing boat, out of Gloucester, Massachusetts, that took off late in the season on a fishing expedition to the Great Banks. There they were, out there fishing, first spot, they didn't have a whole lot of luck, not much success at all, second spot, they did very well. They loaded down that boat, the Andrea Gale, and they headed back to Gloucester. They began getting reports that were, there were three weather systems converging on their path. There was one, actually, that developed over western Indiana, go figure, over the Great Lakes, started moving east. There was a hurricane, Hurricane Grace, out of Bermuda that was coming up. And then there was a Canadian cold front coming down from the north. All these systems converged in what Bob Case, a meteorologist back then, called the perfect storm. This crew, we have no eyewitness account, were caught up in the convergence of that perfect storm. They said there were waves as high as 100 feet. They said that uh, from other accounts, there was a sailboat that had three on board that were rescued during the storm. But they said this was, you couldn't even tell which direction the waves were coming from. Large swells, dark seas, wall of water, white foam on top, just breaking over the ship. And they say that uh, in a situation like that, the captain will take that boat and steer it right into the, right into the wave. And hoping to, to climb and get over it or through it. But a lot of times, because the waves are so large, the displacement of water will cause the bow to drop, and then they're just swamped, lost at sea. The only reason I tell you that story is just one reason, and that is because what we're reading this morning is the spiritual equivalent of a perfect storm. These disciples in the upper room with Jesus. They have been all over the place. They want, uh, they want pri privilege. Grant that we can, one can sit on the, your right hand and one can sit on your left. They wanted 
a physical kingdom on earth. And those desires were crumbling in chapter 13 and as we read in chapter 14. Soon one disciple would betray Jesus. Another would deny Jesus. All would abandon Jesus. And then through a kangaroo court, the opposition to Christ, who were religious primarily, would cry for his, that is Jesus, crucifixion. And he would be crucified. So as much as these disciples are disturbed at this point in time, their night of the perfect storm is not over. In the midst of this, we see the glory of our Christ. It's as though the disciples should have been offering Jesus comfort and encouragement. Yet, Jesus is offering his disciples comfort and encouragement. In the midst of their storm, all the darkness, all the water, not knowing which end is up, Jesus shines through. Jesus gives us what we need here to survive any kind of weather, including the perfect storm. So I was talking to Linda last night. I said, you know, I don't, I've never really been one to prioritize sermons like of importance. But I can tell you this. What we have here is instructive, as instructive as anything you'll find in the scripture regarding not only salvation, but regarding sanctification. I don't know of another passage other than the account of our Lord's crucifixion and many of the things that he talks about here coming to fruition. Then I don't know anything that highlights the weakness, the frailty of disciples like this does. And I don't know anything that highlights the grace of our Lord like this does. But here he teaches us, he comforts us, he assures us in uncertain times what to do. What are we supposed to do? What do you do when you encounter Issues of life and difficulty. What do you do when the world seems to be going haywire? What do you do when you're caught up in the storm? Let's read the text. There in verse 31 of chapter 13. There's a reason we're overlapping from chapter 13 to 14. And that is because... Usually, we let our eyes fall to chapter 14, and Jesus says, let not your heart be troubled. Well, what's the context? The context is the storm, this spiritual storm that these disciples are in. So that's why we begin in 31 of chapter 13. Therefore, 
When he had gone out, Jesus said, well, who went out? That was Judas. Remember, Jesus said, whatever thou doest, doest it quickly. Jesus is, a, or Judas is the one who went out. Judas is the one who would betray our Lord Jesus. Therefore, when he had gone out, Jesus said, now is the son of man glorified and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and will glorify him immediately. Little children, I am with you a little while longer. You will seek me. And as I said to the Jews, now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another, even as I have loved you. That you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered, where I go, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow later. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you right now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, a rooster will not crow until you deny me three times. Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also, and you know the way where I'm going. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How do we know the way? Jesus said to him, I'm the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Father in heaven, we thank you for this portion of scripture. We ask, Lord, that as we sang a while ago, you would bring these words home to our hearts. Lord, that we would be edified, instructed, that we would be drawn closer to you. Help us to be obedient to your word. And we thank you, Lord, for what you're going to do. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. So the disciples are here, and this one, Jesus, that they had left everything to follow, is talking about his departure. He's talking about his death. And what is highlighted is their doubts and their fears. There's doubts and fears that arise within, and there are doubts and fears that are within that come from the uncertain times that they're living in. They are, they are in this spiritual storm. Judas is gone out. 
Before we leave Judas, and I love to leave Judas, I don't really enjoy preaching Judas, talking about him, but you need to know this. We are warned in the scriptures concerning the love of money, and that was Judas's sin. That was the driving force in his life. So Judas is an example of not of what not to do as far as allowing your heart and your life to be consumed with stuff or with money or with the stuff money gets. Don't love it. He doesn't say there's really anything wrong with getting it. He doesn't say that God doesn't tell us through his word that there's anything wrong in keeping it. But he does tell us that there's a problem when we love it, when our hearts go after it. So just a note there. So Judas uh, goes out and Jesus, Jesus says, now the son of man is glorified. Now, that word glorified means Jesus is, he's getting, drawing nigh to his death and his burial and resurrection. And that's important. And he's seeing this unfold and he says, and God will be glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and will glorify him immediately. We're getting to our first point. Verse 33, little children, I am with you a little while longer. You will seek me. And as I said to the Jews, now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. That's a big deal in John. Jesus is always, he's talking about where he is going. If, if, the belief, if those who disbelieve him uh, continue in their unbelief, they cannot follow him where he's going. And he, he warns his disciples, you cannot go where I'm, you cannot come where I'm going. Right there it is. Where I'm going, you cannot come. And then he says this, verse 34, new commandment I give you, that you love one another even as I have loved you and that you also love one another. Right there, even as I have loved you. Go back to chapter 13 and verse 1. That last part of that first verse in chapter 13. Having loved his own who were in the world. The love there, the agape love, the God love that he was pouring out on his disciples. All through this chapter, all through the upper room discourse, chapter 13, 14, 15, 16, 17. Jesus is pouring his love out on his own. We already read in John three sixteen that God so loved the world. Here we have God's love more particularly moving in the direction of his disciples. He's loving his own who were in the world. That's important. They're in the world. And then he loved them to the end. It's talking about the love of Jesus. And we're going to see it ultimately when he dies on the cross. But we see it here in his offering of comfort and assurance to the disciples. We see it when he... Washes the feet of the disciples. And then over here in verse 23. 
of chapter 13, there was reclining on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. This is John's remark of himself. He speaks of himself in the third person. Well, what does that tell us about Jesus' love? Well, it tells us that not only does he love his disciples corporately, but he loves his disciples personally. He loves you. I mean, one day when you get to heaven, nobody's going to be asking what your name is. You think God's going to ask what your name? Hey, who are you? Where'd you come from? No, he's not. He knows your name. God knows your name. You don't believe? Read Second Chronicles. There's like first nine chapters are names. What does that tell us? I, you know, I get. I hear this all the time. Uh, Bill, I'm trying to read my Bible through, but I get to those begats and those names, and it's just killing me. Well, why is it killing you? It means God knows your name. I'm glad God's not going to ask me what my name is when I get to heaven. I mean, he can call me what he wants. But he knows your name. And he loves you particularly. He knows your address. He knows how you're wired. Yes, our God is transcendent. He's over all. We, we marvel at how he could know us. He knows us. And he loves us. And he'll love us to the end. So... Point number one, the master of the sea, the master of the sea is love personified. Perfect love personified. And, and that means, now we think of different um, acts of love. But Jesus is love personified. He is he is offering God-like love, but this is not human. It's not what we humans think of as love. You know, God loves us so much. We see it right here. Jesus tells us the truth. Jesus doesn't gloss over our sin. Jesus doesn't gloss over our frailties, our weaknesses, our proclivities and disposition. He doesn't do that. He, he sees it. He's, he acknowledges it. He tells Peter, oh, you're going to lay down your life for me, Peter. Is that right? Truly, truly, I say to you, far from the truth, Peter, you're not going to lay down your life for me. I'm laying down my life for you to save you. But Peter, a rooster will not crow until you deny me three times. Now, interesting enough, that's the last you hear from Peter until chapter 18. Now, you consider Peter, how impetuous, how talkative he was. You're not going to hear from him the rest of the upper room discourse. He's quiet after that. But the point here is that Jesus loves us. And then right here in this beautiful verse, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another, even as I have loved you, even as I have loved you. So Jesus loves us, he continues to love us, and he'll bring us through. He'll love us, as John points out in chapter 13 and verse 1, he loved them to the end, he will love you to the end. His love will see us through. His love will bring us through. This is the point. The master of the sea is love personified. Now... Here's where we have a difficulty as disciples. We think if God loves us, we will always have 
beautiful sunny weather with a slight breeze out of the southwest. We will not be in the storm. We are immune from the storm. Nothing could be further from the truth. We're in the world. We're not immune from the storm. If you, I would say this, if you, if in your life spiritually, you only have waves coming in one direction, that's got to be a pretty good day. We know that trials help us mature. Trials help sanctify us as long as we're applying the word of God to our lives in the midst of the trial. As long as we're learning to praise God in spite of the trials. He's working. He's using those things to help us and mold us and build us into the people we need to be. He's helping us to see his grace in the midst of the storm, his mercy in the midst of it. That's what this love of God, this love of God does not mean that you or I are immune from the storm. But what it does mean is that God, Jesus and the Holy Spirit are with us in the midst of the storm. They will support us in the midst of the storm. And ultimately, they will bring us through the storm. You're not going to hear that on the Oprah Winfrey show. And you're not going to hear it on the newscast because they're all about what they're all about. But this is the truth. Jesus is with you in whatever weather. And we don't know what's coming, what the world's got in mind for us. But we will stay true to God. We will depend on his grace and mercy. I love this part. Look at this. Verse 10 of chapter 13. What did Jesus say to him? He said, he's talking to Peter. He who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And then he makes this pronouncement. You are clean. Boy, that's a beautiful word from Jesus to his disciples. You are clean. You're clean. You've been forgiven. And then he says, but not all of you. And that not all of you was in reference to Judas, who would betray him. But notice... They have the relationship with Christ. They are clean. They are forgiven. But they're not immune from the storm. The storm is there. Now, point number two. And this is where it gets really strong. The master of the sea is the living word. The master of the sea is the living word. Now, first, the first thing we find out here is we look at the what and the who. The what and the who. Right here in verse 1 of chapter 14, what does Jesus say? He says, do not let your heart be troubled. So these disciples are in this spiritual flux. And Jesus says, do not let your heart be troubled. Well, their hearts were troubled. He's not speaking to perfect disciples at peace. He is speaking to disciples who are troubled way down deep at the gut level. And he's saying, stop being troubled. Can you handle that? Stop being troubled. I mean, I was was in the midst of preparing this and... Something came up and all of a sudden I felt a little, I felt jarred a little bit. Like I was troubled. 
Stop being troubled. Don't be troubled. Oh, there's all kinds of all kinds of stuff out there regarding economy and regarding whatever. I mean, you just come up with something. Don't be troubled by that. That's what Jesus is saying. You're right in the midst of this of this maelstrom of a storm. Do not let your heart be troubled. He puts that on us. Stop being troubled. Stop being in a tumult all the time. What not to do. Right there it is. These are instructions. This is instruction for your worst day. If you want to put it that way. Do not let your heart be troubled. He says this. He says what not to do. That's the what not to do. What to do. He says He tells us what to do. He says, believe in God. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Now, that's been translated. Those few words have been translated probably a hundred different ways. I like the plain meaning of the text. The best translation here is two imperatives. Believe in God. We can understand that, right? He's saying, believe in God, believe in me. Do not let your heart be troubled, but don't stop there. Believe in God, believe also in me. So, waves are, the wind's up, white caps. You don't know what's coming next. What are you going to do? Don't let your heart be troubled. Stop right there. Catch yourself. And then... Believe in God. And Jesus says, believe in me. So simple. Believe in God. Believe in Jesus. Well, what's Jesus telling us? He's telling us that simple trust will get you through the storm. He's also telling us that it's very difficult to trust If you've got all this anxiety built up, let it go and trust God. Trust Jesus. He says, believe in God, the one you can't see. But he's telling these disciples, believe also in me, one you can see. I'm right in front of you. He's the one that walked on water. He's the one that stills the storm. He's the one that even slept through a storm. Trust Jesus. He knows exactly Where you are, he knows exactly what you're going through, what we are going through. He knows all about that and he says, believe in me. So we have the who and the what right there. What not to do and what to do. And who to believe, who to trust. He tells us very plainly, one succinct verse. Secondly, we have the why. It's beautiful that Jesus doesn't stop with telling us exactly what to do. He tells us why to do it. Why would you not let your heart be troubled and believe God and believe in Jesus? Trust Jesus. Well, he tells us in verses 2 and 3. He says this, In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. I love that statement. He's just assuring his disciples that he's telling them the truth. He has no reason 
to make up some fiction for his disciples or for us. He says, I've told you the truth. I've told you the truth the whole time. I'm continuing to tell you the truth. In my father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. There's a lot there. Father's house. He says, my father's house. What's his father's house? Well, the simple, plain understanding of this text without any help from anybody else is, this is an eternal abode. This is an eternal home. This is a reference to heaven. Now, we read the New Testament and there are many different words used for heaven. Sometimes you read along and heaven is a country. Called a country because heaven is so vast and open. Sometimes you're reading along and and heaven is called a kingdom. With reference to the rule of God and the authority of God and the order of things. You read along and sometimes heaven is called what? Paradise. Why would it be called paradise? Well, because of its beauty. Heaven is a beautiful place. But be assured of this, loved one. Heaven is a beautiful place. Heaven is a place. In my father's house. What is that a reference to? Listen, I love this part. This is so wonderful. I get excited. This emphasizes that we are truly brothers and sisters in Christ. We are the family of God. And having been born again as his true children, do you think for a minute he would go prepare a place for us in his father's house and then leave all those rooms empty? No, a thousand times no. He will love you and I to the end. He will see us through the storm. He will bring us safely through and one day we'll all gather at the father's house and we'll rejoice and we'll fellowship and we'll enjoy heaven and the glory thereof. He says in my father's house are many, many, many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. But that's not all. Listen to this. Verse 3. If, if I go and prepare a place for you. That's an if of certainty, by the way. Not of doubt. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. That where I am, there you may be also. Now, remember, time and again, Jesus said what? Where I'm going, you can't come. Well, why was that? Well, it's because he was going back to the Father via the cross. It wasn't time for anyone else to go there. But in time, in his good time, he brings all of his disciples, Peter included, home to glory. And he says, if I go and prepare a place for you, I mean, he's getting it all ready. I mean, doesn't that make you just kind of wonder what it looks like up there? He's getting it all ready. He's taking care of all the details with regard to our eternal abode. And he says, I, not only is he preparing the place, but he says, I will come again. 
And this is a direct reference to the second coming of our Lord Jesus. He says, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. Words of comfort and assurance. Our Lord facing betrayal and facing denial and abandonment. Our Lord facing fierce opposition. Our Lord facing the cross. Our Lord facing suffering and death offers these words. Words with regard to eternity and where we will spend or be with, be at in eternity. He offers these in the midst of that time, of that dark place for the disciples. And he promises there that he will come again and he will receive you. Listen, here's what's important. We, we need this because many of us are living according to the short game. We're living for today. As that old commercial, we're trying to grab for all the gusto we can get and we want it now. No. What Jesus says is, all you disciples, you need to have the long game in mind. And you need to prepare for heaven. Sometimes we're just worried about the month, the week, even the day. He says, get your eyes off of today, off of, off of what life can give. Don't be caught up in the pride of life and get your sights set on eternity. Eternity is real. Heaven is a place. And the words that Jesus offers here are enough for us to incorporate, to bring to our lives, to trust and to one day be with him. So there's the, he's given us the who, the what. What not to do, what to do. He's given us the why to do it. Eternity, heaven, life with him. And then he gives us the how, the how. He says, and you know the way where I'm going. You know that already, right? So everybody's good with that. Nope, Thomas is going to speak up. Thomas says, and I'm so glad Thomas spoke up. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know the way. We don't know where you're going and we don't, we don't know the way. How do we know the way? In other words, how do, how do we get to heaven? How do we get to this father's house? How do we get to that eternal place that you're preparing for us? How do we know the way? And here is the sixth I am statement of Christ. Jesus said to him, I am am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. All right, let's unpack this. Jesus is telling Thomas the way. How do we, Thomas says, How do we know the way? He asked Jesus, how do we know the way? This is important. We want to be in the Father's house one day. How do we know the way? And Jesus gives him the answer. He doesn't talk in some kind of puzzle. He's not offering a riddle. He is giving him plainly how to get to the Father's house. And Jesus says this. I am the way, 
Those words in my NASB translation are there. All the words are there in the manuscript and they show up here in my English translation. All those words, those four words, I am the way. Jesus did not say he was a way. He said, I am the way. There's only one way to heaven. And aren't you glad? One way, and it's through our living Lord Jesus. Through his sacrificial death on the cross, shedding his blood for our sins. Jesus himself bearing our sin, taking our place on that cross, absorbing the wrath of God on him that you and I deserved. The way to heaven, the way to the Father's house is through Jesus. Listen, he is... He is the way. It's not, he's not saying, I'm going to show you the way. Listen, if he'd have said, I'm going to show you the way, just kind of follow what I do. We'd all think that we had, a, had, a, had to be nailed to a cross, die a dynamic death to get there. That we would have to punish ourselves to somehow earn heaven. But that's not what he said. He's saying, I am the way. I am the road. He is the literal road, the literal way to heaven. He is the way himself. His person is the way to heaven. You want to go to go to the father's house one day. You want to be in that great reunion. Well, Jesus is the way and doesn't stop there. He says the truth. We have the truth in Jesus. When Jesus speaks, he tells us the truth. He's speaking the truth right here, that he is the way to heaven. And he is the truth. He doesn't lie to us. He doesn't, he doesn't make light of our sin. He doesn't make light of our times. He doesn't make light of our weaknesses as disciples. He tells us the truth. And the truth is, you and I can't make it to heaven without Jesus. There is no eternal life apart from Jesus. And the world we live in would say something else. And even the Christian world, so-called, that we live in, would say something else today. They would say, well, it doesn't matter. Just live the best you can and you'll make it. No, that's not what Jesus said. Jesus said that he is the way. If there's any going to the Father's house, it's through Christ. And he says, I am the truth. And then he says, and the life. The truth and the life are in Christ. And the life of Christ is that resurrection life that he offers. Over in John chapter 11, what did he say? I am the resurrection and the life. That's what he said. And he He had raised Lazarus from the dead. Then look at this, that last statement. He's speaking the truth. No one, no one comes to the father, but through me. So we understand there's, there's the father's house, heaven, and there is another place. There's a place apart from heaven and that place is hell. And he says, no one comes to the Father but through me. So there's a place for those who don't come to the Father. They don't trust Jesus. 
One day they'll be eternally separated from God the Father and from Jesus the Son and from all the disciples because they did not trust Jesus. Even in our own world, the so-called Christian world, there are those who would preach a universalism that, hey, after all, after it's all said and done, everybody's going to wind up in the Father's house. And that's simply a lie from the pit of hell. You know, there's a, there's a later light movement. They say everybody will eventually get there. No. There's a wider mercy movement going on that says everybody that gets there or everybody that will eventually get to heaven because of God's wider mercy. Listen, God's mercy is wide enough through his son and through the offering of his son on the cross that we would trust him and him alone for our eternal home in heaven, that being in the Father's house. No one, doesn't matter who who you are, comes to the Father. You're not going to get to the Father. You're not going to get to his house, but through Jesus. Now, God is so gracious. As we uh, face uncertain days, the Lord's given us the church body in which to live and grow in the grace and admonition of our Lord. He told us. What did he tell us, remember? He said, love one another. Love one another. So we, we're, we're going to not let our hearts be troubled. We're going to stop being troubled. We're going to believe in God. We're going to believe in Jesus. Here we go. We're going to love one another. How do you do that? Well, as a family, how do you do that in a church? This is where we practice and prepare for what he just told us. This should be a little bit of heaven on earth. How many of you would agree with me when I say there ain't a whole lot of heaven on earth? But this should be a little bit of heaven on earth. And this is where God's people gather. And it's where we learn to love one another. And I'm so thankful for this church family. We are going to grow stronger in our bond toward Christ and God and toward one another in the days and weeks ahead. Continue to trust Jesus. Continue to be concerned for those around you, helping them, encouraging them to follow Christ and to trust him alone. And then one day, catch this, we'll all be in the Father's house. I want to see you in the Father's house. I'm gonna, I, I hope you see me in the Father's house with not such a classy look. I want to be in the Father's house able to jump or at least walk with some degree of uh, not sophistication. I can't even walk like that <laughs> with healing. Yes. Praise be. Well, um, I wanted to read for our closing. I wanted to read a Puritan prayer. This is entitled The Voyage. It is a Puritan prayer written probably back in the 1600s. I love this prayer. O Lord of the oceans, my little bark sails on a restless sea. Grant that Jesus may sit at the helm and steer me safely. Suffer no adverse currents to divert my heavenward course. Let not my faith be wrecked amid storms and shoals. 
Bring me to harbor with flying pennants, hull unbreached, cargo unspoiled. I ask great things, expect great things. I venture on thee wholly, fully, my wind, sunshine, anchor, defense. The the voyage is long, the waves high, the storms pitiless. But my helm is held steady. Thy word secures safe passage. Thy grace wafts me onward. My haven is guaranteed. This day I will this day will bring me nearer to home. Grant me holy consistency in every transaction. My peace flowing as a running tide, my righteousness as every chasing wave. Help me to live circumspectly with skill to convert every care into prayer. Halo my path with gentleness and love. Smooth every asperity of temper. Let me not forget how easy it is to occasion grief. May I strive to bind up every wound and pour oil on all my troubled waters. May the world this day be happier and better because I live. Let my mast before me be the Savior's cross and every oncoming wave the fountain in his side. Help help me, protect me in the moving sea until I reach the shore of unceasing praise. Let's sing.